Thank you, Aaron. I'm a member of Al-Anon. My name's Aaron. My home group is the One Purpose Al-Anon Family Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. We meet on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. We study a step uh, each night and a tradition on the last Thursday of the month, and I absolutely love my home group. I hope you feel the same way about yours. If you're ever in the area, I'm in the phone book. Please look me up. I'd love to take you to a very, very good meeting of Al-Anon. Um, we have several in that area. Um, before I forget, I do want to thank uh, Elaine and Harry and everybody else for in- inviting me to be here, but just putting this thing on, I um, I can't imagine how much work goes into putting on it. I've been involved in some weekend conferences, and that takes a lot of work. I can't imagine what goes into putting on an entire week like this, and uh, I just really appreciate their efforts in, in putting this together, and I've had an absolutely wonderful time right up until right now. <laughs> Several people have asked me if I get nervous, and uh, and I do. You know, self-centered fear is, is a defective character that has not been entirely removed from me yet, and it may not ever be, and I'm okay with that today. I just do what I'm asked to do, and, you know, I'm scared of heights, and I went ziplining today. So I, I, can, I can do stuff that scares me today, and that's the, one of the many benefits of this program. So... I am nervous, but I know that what's going to happen is what happens every time I do what I'm asked to do in Al-Anon, and that's that God is going to get me out of the way here very shortly, hopefully for you and me, and (laughs) allow me to do what I've been asked to do, which is to tell you in a general way what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. And I, I really emphasize that I because... I need to keep this. I need to keep this focus on me. It, it's true that I do qualify for Al-Anon. I've been affected by alcoholism, and many relatives and many friends. But it's equally true that the defective character that made my life so completely unmanageable, and still can today, um, the self-centered fear that I mentioned, the the resentment, the rage, the overblown sense of responsibility for everything and everyone. I don't remember a time in my life uh, that I wasn't deeply impacted by these things. So. It's very important that I make it clear from the onset that I needed a meeting long before I picked up my first drunk. I am in, I am here. I'm here because there's something wrong with me. And I needed some help from some alcoholics in my life to get me into this program. But I am here because I need this program. And I hope I'm able to, to keep that focus on me as I go through my story here. Um, I just started at the beginning. I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina the first of five children, uh, into a very, very loving, loving family. There was no abuse of any kind. I had everything I needed. Um, My mom is the most loving person I've ever met in my life. But along with that love, there always seemed to be a very strong undercurrent of fear. And I'm never sure quite how to explain this, but it was like if you loved someone, you were afraid for them all the time. You worried about them. In fact, that's kind of how you knew how much you loved them was how much you were worried about them all the time and uh, afraid for their health and their safety and all of those things. And um, I just remember that was one of my earliest memories was that was that fear. And um, there was no excessive drinking in my home. I certainly thought when I came into Al-Anon that I had not been affected by alcoholism at all growing up because my parents don't drink occasionally, but they don't have a problem with alcohol. Um, the only real drinker I knew growing up was my mom's mom. And I'll get into that in a second. But I felt very smothered by my mom. I felt very overwhelmed by her love. I didn't know why she was the way she was. I just assumed she wanted to be that way. Um, the, the joke, the family joke, was that mom needs to save the world. Super mom is out there saving the world. And like I said, I have four siblings. I'm the oldest of five. But apparently we weren't coming along fast enough, so I had a series of foster brothers coming in and out of the home, you know, one at a time, two at a time. 
Um, there was always a stranger at every holiday meal. There was always someone uh, sleeping in the spare bedroom that mom was ministering to and taking care of. And these are all good things. These are not bad things. But being selfish and self-centered from a very early age, what I saw was all these strangers are getting mom's unconditional love. And I felt like I had to perform somehow to get their love. And I have no idea where I came up with that. My parents didn't tell me that. They never hinted at that. I made that up entirely on my own. So very early on, I developed this perfectionist streak to try to, I don't know, gain the love that mom seemed to be giving to everyone else. And um, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know why mom was so full of fear, why she needed to save everyone, why love meant what love meant to her. And it took getting into Al-Anon learning a little bit about this family disease of alcoholism to understand a little bit about why mom may have been the way she was. Like I said, the only real problem drinker I knew growing up was mom's mom, my grandmother. And I didn't have a problem with her drinking. She was the fun grandma. She she wasn't the one that made me go to church and sit quietly. She was the one that would, you know, give me the first sip of every beer I'd bring her from the fridge and act inappropriately in public and (laughs) embarrass everybody. That's a lot of fun when you're a kid. Um, It was for me. So I didn't see any problem with it. And she was she was always crazy. She didn't change when she opened that first beer. Everybody else in the room changed when she opened that first beer. <laughs> but I just, you know, I didn't see any problem with that and had no idea uh, until I well into Al-Anon that I may have been affected by this family disease because we talk about it in Al-Anon. We're all affected no matter who the alcoholics are. And this isn't about blaming anyone. It's just about understanding why I am the way I am, why mom is the way she is. And, and I love my mom today. We have a wonderful relationship uh, uh, because of this program, and, and, and my dad too. But uh, Anyway, I was just a miserable, miserable kid. I forgot to look and see what time I started. Well, okay. Uh, miserable kid. I couldn't get along with anyone. I, uh, I was shy and painfully, painfully self-conscious. Um, you know, I've learned now and what those words mean. Self-conscious. It means I'm conscious of me. It means I'm thinking of me all the time. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about what you're probably thinking about me. When, of course, you're very, very rarely thinking about me at all. But I think you're thinking about me as much as I am. And it's not good things you're thinking about me. And it's just miserable, miserable childhood. I was raised in a very small, um, fairly extreme religious uh, environment. Um, I remember getting grounded because they caught me listening to the radio, that sort of crazy stuff. And I was raised in that kind of uh, church and school. It was a small private uh, religious school. And I uh, couldn't get along with anyone there. Uh, through my perfection, perfectionist streak, I uh, did very well at school. I just felt like I had to. So while I was always on the very verge of getting kicked out for arguing with everyone in authority and just generally being miserable to be around, I made straight A's. And I actually skipped second grade. And then I was a year younger than everyone around me, which made the whole social awkwardness that much worse. And I just, I was so horribly uncomfortable on my own skin. I couldn't get along with anyone. I felt like everybody else knew all the things you hear on both sides, AA and Al-Anon, all of these feelings. um, I felt them. And uh, I ended up getting kicked out of that school um, halfway through eighth grade. um, And I didn't really do any one thing. There was no great thing that I did that got me kicked out. They just got tired one day. And my parents still would prefer that I say I was asked to leave. It's different than getting kicked out somehow. Um, so I was asked to leave halfway through eighth grade, and it was just, like I said, they had just got, they couldn't put up with me anymore because I was just angry. I argued about everything. I, I hated everyone, and um, nobody knew what was wrong with me, and they did their best. I've had an uh, opportunity to make amends 
to all of them and to a person, each one of them said, we didn't know what to do with you. And I know that today. I know that they all tried to do their best and they just had no idea what to do with someone as unhappy and miserable as I was. But anyway, I got kicked out. I was homeschooled for a year and a half which was hell on earth for everyone involved in that, <laughs> you can imagine, because by this time I really didn't like my parents and they didn't like me much either. And then for the last three years, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, I went off to a, another very small private religious school where, again, I, uh, I had now not had any social interaction for a year and a half. I was terrified of everyone and everything, and I was absolutely miserable. And what happened for me was that at age 15, I found my solution. And um, she came in halfway through the, the school year. Um, she was, uh, I never know how to describe her. I, she was really easy to pick out. Everybody in that school looked exactly the same, I thought, except me. Um, they all wore the same clothes and had the same haircut. And um, she was really easy to pick out. She had her hair dyed pink, and it was shaved in a V in the back, I think. I put on v. <laughs> and she wore crazy clothes, and she was just generally crazy. And I know today I could have picked her out blindfolded because I'm very good at finding these people. But um, <laughs> I had never, in my very, very sheltered existence, I had never met anyone anything like her. She was drunk all the time. She would do anything that would change where she was at mentally, emotionally. Um, she lied about everything, and I was in love. This was uh, <laughs> this is what I was looking. I don't know if she was looking for someone to save her. Probably not. But I know today that I was looking for someone to save. And uh, see, Mom had taught me that to be a good person, you go out in the world and you find people that you think need your help, and you hold them down and help the hell out of them, whether they want it or not. <laughs> And that's how you know you're a good person. You never take care of yourself. You never focus anything on you. It's all about helping other people whether they want it or not. And that fit the bill for me. That filled a hole in me that I didn't even know was there. And we were off and running. I was 15. She was 17. She was an older woman. That was exciting. And um, we started dating. And, uh, and like I said, it was insanity. She lied about everything. I didn't understand that. Even when the truth would have sounded better, she just needed to lie. And um, I, I, I have so many memories of um, how it felt, how good inside it felt when I would hold her hair while she threw up. Over and over and over. She would be sick like she was every time she drank, which was every time we were together. And I would just be thinking, I'm such a good guy. I am such a good guy to, to be taking care of this. Who wouldn't want to have this wonderful guy in their life? And... Um, and it was insanity. I, eventually, I turned 16. I got my license, and things got a little safer. Uh, so I, now, I was driving us around on all of these adventures. And um, it was nuts. But it, like I said, it really filled a, filled a hole in me that I didn't even know was there. And we graduated uh, the same year. And uh, she was 19. I was 17 when we graduated. And uh, we were still together. And... Um, she went off to school in college. She actually did the normal, you know, thing. Went off to school and actually went to Tennessee. This was in Charlotte, North Carolina that I was in school. And I had done straight A's through high school because I just had to. And I uh, did really well on my SATs and uh, had scholarship offers. And I turned it all down. I said, I hate school. I hate authority. I hate everybody. Never going to school. And I'm moving out. And I did. Um, she went off to Tennessee and I was moving out. And... Uh, for the first time in my life, got to choose who I lived with. So I left this very loving, nurturing home in which I felt completely smothered and miserable and chose these three guys to, to move in with. They were all 
17, one of them might have been 16, 17, 18 years old, I don't know. Two of them well on their way toward probable alcoholism and some other issues. And then the third guy was one of these weird, normal people. He wasn't one of them, and he wasn't, he's not one of me. We're still good friends today. And someone rented us a house, which is just mind-boggling to me. Someone <laughs> actually rented us a house of these four 17-year-olds. And it was, a, it was actually a, a nice place for about a week, you know, that we were there. And, and um, it was, I mean, from the start, it was absolute insanity, as you can imagine, four 17-year-olds in a, in a house. And uh, um, the normal guy did what any normal person would have done in a situation like that. He left. He said, I don't think he lasted a month. He said, I can't live like this. I have to go to bed and get up in the morning and, and go to work and do normal things. And see, I was doing all those things, too, but I was so angry at him that he would leave me with these irresponsible idiots, you know. Why, because I, it's always me. Why is it always me that has to pay the bills and, and, and get them to pay me and, and patch the holes in the walls and talk to the cops when they're here every other week? Why is it always on me? And it, it, I just fell into a pattern of living, of this haze of self-righteous indignation that I lived in for a long time. And why is it always me that has to take care of everything? If they would just get their act together for a little while and give me a break, everything would be okay. Well, it was always about someone else changing, and I never had a glimmer uh, of uh, the idea that I had a choice. It, ne- it literally never occurred to me that I could move out, that I could find another place to live. And I don't, if you understand that, you do, and if you don't, I can't explain it. It literally <laughs> never occurred to me that I had any other option. My only option was for someone else to change so I could be okay, and that was a pattern I took for a, a long, long time. And so we went on, and things were things were crazy. We had to replace the normal guy when he moved out because you know we needed four guys to pay the rent. And we somehow, you know, we had hundreds of people coming in out of, out of this house every week, and uh, we somehow ran into this really old guy who was like thirty, and he had lots of money. He was just throwing money all around, and he needed a place to live. And we thought, well, he's got money; he'll probably pay the rent. So he moved in, and. Uh, you know, he was probably an alcoholic and with some other issues, but uh, the reason he had all that money is he was selling those other issues. Um, <laughs> and that's why he had all that money. So th- then things got really, really crazy because now it's it's the after-party place for every rave and everything else that happens in, in Charlotte in 1993. And uh, now I am every morning getting up and literally kicking strangers off the bathroom floor so I can take a shower and go to work, and I'm just angry all the time. I'm miserable all the time. I got to be good friends with one of the other roommates. We hung out together and got to know each other and had a lot of deep talks and uh, that sort of thing, and I, I drank with them. I, I, I try to remember at some point to say I was right there with these guys doing just about everything else they were doing, you know, there but for the grace of God. If alcohol had done for me what it did from, for all of the alcoholics I've met over the years, I'd be dead. I was looking for something to fix me. Alcohol just didn't do it. There before the grace of God, I don't have a disease. And I mention that because there's no room for any kind of self-righteous attitude of, well, if they just hadn't drunk, they wouldn't be alcoholics. You know, I was right there drinking with them, and I don't have a disease. And maybe if I had kept drinking like that, I would have crossed that line. I don't know. It's not important. I just I feel the need to mention that. But anyway, I got to be good friends with this guy. And uh, what happened with him was he got hooked on this stuff the new guy was selling. And I mention this because even though it's not specifically alcohol, this is the 
it was the first time I really tried to control someone's intake of anything. With the girlfriend, I never tried to control her drinking. That was just not an option. I knew somehow that that was not going to happen. It was just my job to clean up the mess afterwards. But with, with this guy, because it was such an abrupt change, it was like he was a different person overnight. I'd never seen anything like it. I tried everything I could to stop it. I must have read about tough love somewhere, and I remember I sat down with him one day and had a real serious conversation, two 17-year-olds saying, you know, I, I love you, man, and our friendship means a lot to me, but if you keep doing this stuff, we, we just can't be friends anymore. And he looked at me and he said, okay. <laughs> Not let me think about it. You know, our friendship means a lot to me, too. None of that stuff. Just, all right, see ya. You know, and... Uh, <laughs> I was devastated. How could he do this to me? You know, and how did it to me? And if, uh, this had nothing to do with me. I'm so grateful through Al-Anon to know that almost nothing has anything to do with to me. It has nothing to do with me. He knew what he needed to do, but I was, you know, I was devastated. And um, I remember my girlfriend was coming to visit for the first time. We had been trying to have some sort of uh, long-distance relationship, and who knows what she was doing in college. Um, but she was coming to visit, and I was very excited about this visit. I, I was, I, I was seven. I, I was proud of my crack house. <laughs> I, had, I, was, I was 17 years old. I had my own house, and I was, I was tidying it up and getting ready for her to come visit, and been looking forward to this for weeks. And she, you know, she. This is just a testament to the type of place I chose to live in. She walked in the door. Someone immediately handed her a substance. She did what she did every time, which was to ingest the substance without asking what it was or anything like that. And she was, you know, off and running. Now, my plans for the evening, and we're going to sit down and catch up. How's school going for her? How's my job going? How's life in general? Her plans for the evening now involve sitting in the corner for the next eight or ten hours looking at her hands. That's what she's going to be doing <laughs> tonight. Not my plans, you know. And, uh, again, how could she do that to me? I've been looking forward to this for so long. And, again, had absolutely nothing to do with me. It's so self-centered, but uh, they just kept doing all this stuff to me. And uh, that was not the first or the hundredth time something exactly like that had happened. I mean, I, but I was shocked every time. Every time the exact same thing happened, I was just shocked and appalled that it happened. I just couldn't believe the same thing happened for the hundredth time. And I don't know why that was the last straw, because it happened all the time, but it was. I could not deal with that anymore and I ended that relationship I have to be honest and I'm not proud of this but I was scared of her and uh, like a real man I waited till she was back in Tennessee <laughs> and that's just me being honest um, I called her on the phone and, and broke up with her and she did what I expected her to do she freaked out and she had her roommate calling saying she's hurting herself you've got to you've got to change your mind and I don't know how I was able to say no I, that was God long before I believed in that God doing for me because I never said no to anything. If I was going to get your approval or your love or you to tell me what a great guy I was or heck, even if you didn't do any of those things, if it was going to make me feel like I was a good guy, I said yes to the most insane things. But for some reason I was able to say no and end that relationship. Um, I found out after I'd been in al for a while that back in, I think it was 10 years ago now, um, she was in her earlier mid-20s, she did end up killing herself. And, um, you know, I'm sad. I'm sad for her, you know. Um, but I'm so grateful, selfishly, that I had some recovery when I found that out. Because if I had not, I would have done what I always did, which was to somehow make that about me. How, oh, what if I... Because she used to call me, and I, would, I never took her phone call. I never talked to her again. She would call my parents in the middle of the night, and they'd tell me she's calling again. And I never talked to her again. And if I had not had some recovery, 
in some perspective, I would have somehow made it all about me. I would have said, oh, maybe if I had taken a phone call, maybe if I had something. And I don't see the, the incredible arrogance and ego in thinking that I somehow could have had some control or power over this horrible disease that she had that she had no power over. You know, I'm so grateful that when I found that out, I had taken these steps. I was free of the resentment. I didn't hate her anymore because when I came in Alana, I thought she was the worst person who had ever lived. I thought she had ruined my view of women and of love and of relationships because she did do some horrible things to me. But when I found this out, I was free of all that. I had no sense of responsibility for it and I had no resentment and anger anymore. I was just sorry for her. She was not a bad person. She had a horrible disease. And that's the kind of freedom that I found in Al-Anon that I'm so grateful for. But going back to 17 years old, I found out real quick that I do not do well without someone to obsess about. I could, because if I don't have someone, what she did for me in that relationship was I never had time to think about me anymore. Before that, all I was doing was thinking about me and what's wrong with me. And with her, I don't have time for that. I'm constantly chasing her around and wondering where she is and tracking her down and making excuses for her and bailing her out and lying for her. And I don't have time to think about me. And now I'm alone. And all I can do is sit and think about me, and I can't do that. So it was very shortly after that I found my next volunteer hostage. She was, she needed help. She was right there, and she looked like she needed my help. And uh, alcoholism, her older sister's alcoholism, had just destroyed her family. And um, she uh, uh, needed to move out. And she was still in high school, so we moved in together. And uh, she, I was 18, I guess, by this point. I think she was 17. And uh, we, we moved in with some other people, and uh, we're together for four and a half years, 18 to 22 and a half, what I hope are the worst four and a half years of my life and of hers, I really do, uh, because it was absolute insanity and misery. I don't know if she's an alcoholic. We both did a lot of drinking during this, uh, this time together, and we both did an enormous amount of damage to each other. Um, it was just one of those relationships where everybody else can see how utterly miserable we were, except us. And um, uh, we had some good times. Uh, being in Colorado reminds me of, uh, uh, I, I was trying to be a hippie back then. And uh, so I had real long hair and the big beard down to here and uh, a VW van. And boy, there's a lot of those around here. I understand that. And um, uh, we traveled all over the country, months at a time, lived on the road. We had some good times. We. Uh, we were up in uh, Colorado a lot and, and driving in here. It was the first time since then that I had driven through Colorado and I'd forgotten how incredibly beautiful it is up here. But uh, um, the, being a hippie though, just didn't work out. What, what I found out is that people that need Al-Anon, or at least me, make really horrible hippies. <laughs> I was talking to somebody about this earlier. You know, like really schedule-oriented. Like, we're doing this next. And uh, just full of fear and anxiety all the time. And it's my van. Um, I was horrible at it. I was the worst hippie ever. And, uh, and I really tried. I mean, I really tried. I had the look and everything else that goes along with it. That, that seeming ease and comfort of that lifestyle was so attractive to me. And I just never got anywhere close to it. <laughs> they were all good at it. They just wondered what was wrong with me. But, of course, I had the van. So um, Anyway, so we had some good times. Mostly it was absolutely miserable. But I stayed for the same reasons I stayed in other relationships, in friendships, in jobs, um, this is as good as it gets. You know, this that is not ever going to get any better than this. Um, so I might as well keep what I've got. Um, I needed to be needed. That was another reason. And I really thought she desperately needed me. I really thought that, and I desperately needed to be needed. Um, but really, more than anything, I think it was just the fact that the most miserable relationship was 
was better than the abject terror of being by myself and just having myself to think about and not having someone else to spend all of that mental energy on. I just couldn't do it. And so we were going to get married. We uh, were shopping for rings. We had found a place up north of Boulder called Netherlands. I'm sure some of you have heard of it. Um, we were going to move up there and, and start our journey together. Um, 22 by this time. And what happened was um, I met the woman who's my wife today. Annie and I were working together uh, at my father's natural food store. When you look like I looked, the only place you can work is your father's natural food store. <laughs> and um, Annie and I met and uh, just fell absolutely head over heels in love, the type of love neither of us ever imagined was possible uh, for us. Um, I'd never met anybody like her. She, she was so beautiful inside and out and had a spirituality that was very, very different from the dogma I had grown up with and had rejected. She just truly believed that God was everything and that everything was going to work out the way it was supposed to. And I just, I was just blown away by this woman. And um, it turned out she was sober for about four years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, now, I love drunks, obviously. I'd never met a, a sober one. Uh, and so I was absolutely head over heels in love. The only, you know, awkward thing was I was getting married to this other <laughs> woman. Um, and that was horrible. I mean, I laugh about it now, but that was that was horrible to have to, have to end that relationship. And the, this incredibly self-centered, egotistical reason it was horrible is that I really thought she couldn't live without me. And that is embarrassing to say that out loud, especially up here. That is really embarrassing to say that, but I have to admit that I really thought that. And uh, she's fine. She's told me several times. Um, she is just fine. She has thanked me, thanked me for ending that miserable, miserable relationship. But... Um, but it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And so I ended the relationship, but the even more awkward thing was we had a guy staying with us who lived in Boulder who we had promised we would drive back to Boulder when we went to get married. So, by golly, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So one morning, after I had broken up with her, she and I and this guy got into our car, and I drove us from Charlotte, North Carolina to Boulder, Colorado in full-blown, insane control mode. I wouldn't let anybody else drive. It took almost exactly 24 hours of straight driving. I was absolutely insane, literally, when I got to Boulder. Um, dropped her off with some friends. Um, gave her everything we owned, because that's how I deal with guilt. Here, you take everything, take the car, take everything in our house, everything. You got it. Um, got on a Greyhound bus with my duffel bag and my pillows, what I, everything I owned in the world at 26 years old, and uh, it took a 44-hour Greyhound bus trip. <laughs> that is delightful if you've never done that. So take a 44-hour Greyhound bus trip somewhere. Um, back to Charlotte, North Carolina, and Annie, my wife today, picked me up uh, at the Greyhound station like 3 o'clock in the morning, and, um, and we moved in together, because that's what I do, apparently. Um, <laughs> now I, I often wonder what she told her sponsor about that, but... Um, <laughs> That was before I knew anything about sponsorship or anything like that. And I didn't have anywhere else to go. You know, we'd left the house that we were living in. So, and my, that was a long story. My sister was living with her at the time. And anyway, we moved in together and just, oh, we were so in love. Just head over heels, ooey gooey type thing we never thought possible. And, and, uh, and it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, she immediately became my higher power. She and this relationship became my higher power. It, it, the, the fact that someone this beautiful and wonderful could actually love me validated me in a way that I never thought possible. And she didn't ask to be put up on that pedestal. She didn't ask for that. It's just what I did. 
And so we were going along, and I, you know, I started going to some meetings with her and meeting her AA friends. And I immediately loved open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Like I said, I love alcoholics. I've loved them my whole life. And these are sober alcoholics that are that are working this program of some sort and, 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 and being of service and doing these great things. And I read the first 164 pages of her book and thought, man, this is this is really great stuff for people that need it. And uh, and I heard her give her story and thought, well, she really needs it. Because uh, <laughs> that person she's talking about that she used to be is not the woman that I'm in love with today. And so I just loved AA. And uh, we were going along and we were going to get married. And uh, what happened was we went to visit some friends of mine in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it was... It was actually that normal roommate of mine that I'm still friends with today. He and his girlfriend were in Wilmington, and we went to visit them, and Annie's, she's told me she's okay being around alcohol. She's four years sober, and I'm not here to tell her story about what she had stopped doing that she needed to do to maintain her spiritual condition on a daily basis to, to keep sober, but we were sitting in a restaurant that was also a brewery. My friends aren't alcoholic. I'm not alcoholic. They're going around these little shot glasses of beer to see what we want to order a picture of. And Annie just reached over and swigged a shot glass of beer. And uh, I don't think she drank the whole thing. Well, again, she's given me permission to tell you this. It's, I'm not going to tell her story. But she was looking for us to say, hey, it's about time. Join in. We've been waiting for you to, to join in and drink with us, and let's go. She did not get that reaction from us. <laughs> they knew she was sober. I knew she was sober. What she got was, what are you doing? You know, just panic. And she set that down and played it off. Oh, there was no alcohol in that. I was just fooling around. And that was it. That's the most I've ever seen my wife drink. And everything fell apart from there, which tells me that this disease is, has as much to do with alcoholism <laughs> or more than it has to do with the substance alcohol because everything changed that day. And I didn't know it yet. What happened was we got back to Charlotte. She was she had a new sponsor, was going back through the steps, did a fifth step, uh, kind of a, as an afterthought, said, oh, a couple months ago I took a sip of beer. And her sponsor said, oh, well, you know, you're going to need to change your sobriety date. Well, the woman that came home from that meeting with her sponsor was not the woman I fell in love with. And I don't know how else to put it. The, the woman I fell in love with loved AA and was so grateful for her sponsor and her recovery. This woman was mad. <laughs> she was angry and she was resentful. And she was saying things like, if I'm going to pick up a white chip, I'm going to go earn a white chip. And I was absolutely terrified. And everything changed. Everything about her changed. She was, it was like a night and day, a completely different person. Her attitude, her behavior, how she treated me, everything changed. And I was, I didn't know what to do. See, I sort of knew how to deal with drinking because I can blame it on the booze. Now they were drunk. They won't do that again. But I don't know how to deal with this. She's not drinking and she's insane. And of course, I was nuts too. I, mean, I want to make sure that's clear. I was absolutely crazy at this time. But I didn't know what to do. I, it's all I'm thinking about night and day. It's the first thing I think about in the morning. Is she going to drink again? Because she's talking about drinking again. And how am I going to keep her from drinking again? And I know I want to spend the rest of my life with this woman. But I can't do it if she's going to drink. And how am I going to spend every day walking on eggshells, waiting until I screw up again? And she does get drunk because, of course, it was all my fault. Because I'm that self-centered. It was my friends. If we hadn't been there, this wouldn't have happened. And I'm just trying to imagine living the rest of my life with this woman, waiting for her to drink again. And plus, I don't know now if I want to live the rest of my life with this woman. I want the woman I fell in love with back. And I was just absolutely nuts. I, I, I was basically at a point where I could not imagine life with the alcoholic, and I couldn't imagine life without the alcoholic. I could not leave this relationship that was my higher power, but I couldn't figure out how I was going to stay in it. I just couldn't do it. And... Uh, 
I was describing all this insanity to a friend of hers in AA who did a very loving thing and said, hey, you know about Al-Anon, right? And I think I probably said something like, yeah, I know about Al-Anon. I was, uh, I was really sure Al-Anon was not for me. Um, my opinion of Al-Anon uh, had been formed by the, the uninformed views of some members of AA. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have a high opinion of Al-Anon, and it was all ignorance. I didn't know what it was. But I was absolutely positive that Al-Anon was not for me. I was 23 years old. You know, I had beard down here and hair down here. There was a lot of reasons why I was sure that Al-Anon was not for me. And I was talking with Aaron about this earlier. I was so grateful for that gift of desperation because I didn't know what else to do. I knew, I knew that Al-Anon was not going to work for me. But the only thing I knew a little bit more than that was that I literally could not go on living and thinking and feeling the way I was every day. And so I gave it a try. Sometime in June or July, it's all a haze. June or July of 1999, I went to the Queen City Monday Night Al-Anon Family Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I walked in there, and it was pretty much exactly what I expected. Um, I looked around that room, and uh, like I said, 23, beard down to here, hair down to here. It uh, appeared to be about 90% women. Um, the median age appeared to be about 102. Um, and that was obviously not anywhere near the case. That was just my skewed perception. But when you're 23, I think everybody looks really old. But um, And I just looked around and I thought, there's no way I can have anything in common with any of these people. And because of what I thought Alan was, I also thought that the way it was going to work was that we were going to be sitting there and the woman next to me was going to say, and then he got drunk, and then he ran over the dog, and then he crashed the car into the house, and then the house burnt down, and I passed. <laughs> and, then, and then I was going to have to say, hi, I'm Aaron, and my wife took a sip of beer. <laughs> and I'm really freaking out about it. And they were going to say, get out of here. You don't qualify for this program. you know." And I'm so grateful. These women didn't care what I looked like. They didn't care what my experiences were. They told me I was in the right place. You know, they... they they welcomed me with open arms. And I was not very welcomable. I was, I was terrified of people, and um, I was judging every one of them as much as I thought they were judging me. And, um, but I kept coming back. I started to hear some solution. And I'm so grateful they, they welcomed me like that. Nobody ever asked me if I was in the wrong room. And, um, you know, I was looking for a reason not to come back. I did not want to be here. And nobody would give me that reason. And I'm so grateful for that. And I kept coming back. And I, I started getting a little better. Annie and I did end up getting married in January of 2000. And we had some good times the first few years of our marriage. We had a lot of really horrible times. And I'm not going to go into taking her inventory here. But basically, without the drinking, we went through just about everything I've heard people describe in active alcoholism. There just wasn't any drinking to blame it on. It was rough. She describes it as a long period of being a dry drunk. And uh, so that's the term I use for it. And I needed to learn about the disease of alcoholism, that it didn't really have anything to do with the fact whether she was drinking or not. And I needed to start learning that it had absolutely nothing to do with me because I was just as crazy as she was, if not more so. And I needed to learn that if I'm, I need to find a way to be happy, joyous, and free no matter what happens with her. And that was absolutely 100% impossible when I got here. So I kept coming back, and I hit a plateau pretty quickly where I just realized I wasn't getting any better, and I just kept hearing people talking about the solution, about taking the steps. And if I was going to take these steps, I was going to have to get a sponsor. And the last thing I wanted to do, and my fear and arrogance to ask another man to help me, was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do, and the single best thing I think I've ever done for myself uh, was to, to reach out. 
and ask for help. And Tom was um, uh, always at this Tuesday meeting at the club, and he was always focused on the solution. We had nothing in common. He was older than my dad. He wasn't married to an alcoholic, but he, he had something I wanted. And one day after the meeting, I finally got all my courage together, and I said, Tom, will you be my sponsor? And he asked me two things that were really important that I asked guys uh, today that I sponsor. He said, are you, are you willing to do everything that I do to get what I've gotten from this program? And, of course, I had no idea what he was talking about, so I said yes. And, but that was important because his way isn't the right way. It's just the only way he knows. And if I'm not willing to do what he does, he can't help me. And the second thing I asked, are you willing to pass this on exactly the way it's given to you? And I, of course, have no idea what he's talking about. So I said, yes, Tom, I just I want what you have. I'm willing to do what you do. He said, okay, I'd be happy to take you through the steps, but I've got to tell you, I'm also a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know that. Tom respected our request to, to maintain his anonymity in, in AA while he was in Al-Anon. So I had no idea Tom was also an Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm grateful for that. I don't know if I would have asked him if I had known that. Um, of course, at the time, I thought there were like 40 people in that room and I could still pick a drunk out of the room. You know, attracted to you people. But um, right at that point, it would have been really awkward to say, ooh, never mind. Uh, so... So I said, yeah, Tom, I don't care. I want what you got. I'm willing to do what you do. And he said, let's get started. And he took me through these steps. I thought I had taken the first step because I knew intellectually that if Annie was going to drink or if she was drinking, which sometimes I wondered if that's what was going on, that there was nothing I could do about that. I couldn't control anything else she was doing. So I knew I was powerless over alcohol, the substance, alcoholism, the disease, and alcohol, the alcoholic, her. Um, but Tom wanted me to take a little bit deeper look at this. He had me write down every single thing in my life that I'm powerless over, everything. And then next to each one of those, he had me write down specifically how my life becomes unmanageable when I try to control those things. And that was a really important exercise for me because I needed to see my life's not unmanageable because I'm powerless over alcohol. If that were true, my life would always be unmanageable because I'm always going to be powerless over alcohol. My life only becomes unmanageable when I try to control things that I'm powerless over. And I needed to see that connection because I had lived my whole life with this delusion that if I love you, I absolutely cannot be okay if you're not okay. And, of course, being okay means you're doing what I think you ought to be doing, not doing the things I think you shouldn't be doing, generally treating me the way I think I should be treated. And um, if you're not applying my solution to your problem, the only because I love you, and I, and I think this is what love is. I know I'm not God. I know I'm not your higher power. But I do see the path God has laid out for you. <laughs> and... As someone who loves you, it is clearly my job to gently, and sometimes not so gently, steer you onto this path and guide your way. And I don't see the arrogance in that. I think that's what love is. And if you're not applying my solution to your problem, the only reason, because I love you so much, uh, the only reason I can imagine for that is that I haven't explained it well enough yet. <laughs> really. And so I'll explain over and over and over and over in slightly different words why it is that it's not okay what you're doing with this insane fantasy that one day you're going to get it. The light will shine down from above and, the, you know, and you'll get it. And you'll say, I see. I, I see what you've been saying all along. And you'll apologize for not seeing it earlier. <laughs> Always part of this fantasy. I'm so sorry. I didn't see it so clear that you're right. And it's not okay what I'm doing. And then you'll change. And then, of course, I'll be okay. And that's insanity. That's how I lived my whole life. That's unmanageability. And I needed to see that in that first step. To see that it was my behavior that made my life unmanageable for me to have any chance of coming to believe that higher power could restore me to sanity. I came up with a lot of prejudice against the God of my religion, uh, the God of my uh, 
you know, growing up. And uh, I had to let go of all of that. I had to let go of all the prejudice of preconceived notions. And um, content prior to investigation, I brought both of those in with me. And my, lo- and my sponsor just very lovingly pointed out that, first of all, it doesn't say God yet. It just says that there's some higher power that could restore me to sanity. Not even would yet. Just could. And I wasn't quite arrogant enough to say whatever power there is in this universe, there has to be something higher than me. Otherwise, there's no hope. I just saw clearly in my first step what a miserable job I've done running the show. So my only hope is that there's some higher power that could do a better job of it. Can I come to believe that whatever power that is can restore me to sanity? Yeah, I can do that with the help of the sponsor. Now, there's a little bit of a, a leap for me from that kind of nebulous higher power to a caring God that I find in the third step. But if I've admitted that my way is a miserable failure, I've come to believe that some higher power could restore me to sanity and help me do this much better, then what choice do I have? What intelligent choice do I have other than to make this decision to turn it over, to turn my will and my life over to the care of loving God? I'm so grateful for that as we understood him. When I first started going to those AA meetings, I saw that in almost every time I saw the steps, the only part that was emphasized, underlined or italicized, was that as we understood him. I don't know why that is. I'm sure some historian can tell me why. But what that meant to me was that must be really, really important. The only part that's emphasized. That was that as we understood him, choosing the God of my conception was very distinctly not an option when I was growing up. In fact, that was a straight shot to hell. That very concept <laughs> was not an option. And, and so with that option of choosing my own understanding of God, I was able to make that decision and say, I, don't, I didn't know, and sometimes still don't know how to, make it, how, how to turn my will and my life over. But I know how to make a decision. I know how to make a commitment. And once I've done that, I'm, all I have to do is try to live like I've made that decision. Try to live each day like I've made a decision to turn my will and my life over. Well, having done that, I got to do an inventory, and we did it the way my sponsor told me to do it. And uh, there's no right or wrong way. There's lots of ways to do this in Al-Anon, and I think the right way is the way your sponsor tells you to do it. And that's how it works for me. And uh, he, he had me make a list of everybody that I was resentful at. There were several parts to this inventory, but the, the main part was this list. And I loved that idea. I, just, I could name 20 people off the top of my head that had just ruined my life and all the horrible things. I got right to work on that. All the <laughs> terrible things they had done to me and how it affected me and you know, fear, 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 fear all over. Well, then, of course, I got to turn the page and I got to see that not only should I think about forgiving them, not for their sake, but for, the, for mine, to be freed from this resentment. I got to look at my part, the, the role that I played in every single one of these sick, unhappy relationships. And, and that was very painful. I got to see my character defects in black and white. And I knew what some of them were. But what I got to find out in that fifth step with the sponsor's help is that some of the very things that I thought defined me as a good human being were, in fact, character defects. That overblown sense of responsibility for everyone and taking care of everyone, I thought that's what made me a great guy. It's a huge defect of character. And not only that, every single thing I ever did was selfish. I thought I was the most selfless person that ever lived. And every time I did that, I was trying to get something. I was trying to get your approval, your love, trying to get you to stay and not leave, whatever it was. And so I got to see my, my character defects right there in black and white, and that hurt a lot. But I also got to see that that's what's making me so miserable. That's what's blocking me from the sunlight of the Spirit. Not these things in the first column. It's me. And there's some hope in that, because if it's me, I can do something about that. With the help of this program my higher power, I can change. And so having seen what was making me so miserable in that fifth step, I immediately went home and worked at six and seven the way that he told me to. I spent some time in prayer and meditation. 
I made sure I had done everything as thoroughly as I could, and uh, and I made sure that I wanted to let go of all these defects of character. And I got down on my knees and I asked God to remove them and went to bed and nothing really happened and woke up in the morning and of course all my character defects were still there. And uh, I don't know, it's really silly to say that. But I don't know what I expected to happen. But that wasn't it. And I called my sponsor and said, it's all, all my defects are still here. And he said, probably something very loving like, did you actually read the words in the steps? Because of course it says nothing about them being removed. It says that I'm ready. And I humbly ask God to remove them. And part of that humbly to me means that like everything else, it's probably not going to happen on my time. And it may not be the, the defect that's killing me at the moment that gets removed next. But that readiness that it talks about in the sixth step is so important for me because that's not... I mean, I was ready because I saw what those defects were doing to me, but that is an action. That readiness is an action I take every day. Our Path to Recovery book says something like, in step six is where we take the action of having God remove our defects of character. Well, that sounds like a very horribly written sentence because how can I take an action of having God do something? But for me, that, that action every day in which I show my readiness means that I've got to do stuff no matter how I feel. Um, God has never removed a resentment if I keep doing something I know makes me resentful. It's just, for me, it's never happened. I can pray and pray and pray for that resentment to be removed, and it's never happened if I keep doing things that I know are going to make me resentful. God has never removed my guilt and shame if I keep doing things I should feel guilty and ashamed of. And God has never removed my self-centered fear if I refuse to do things that scare me, like this. Um, I mean, this really is a perfect example of that. When I was first asked to speak, um, I, I was... I cannot put into words how terrified I was. And then especially when I was first asked to speak at a little small conference, and they give you lots of time to think about that ahead of time, months. And every day, several times a day, I would think about the fact that I was going to have to do this, and I would have a physical pain of fear every time I thought about it. And I would say, God, I know this is, this is bondage of self. This is self-centered fear. Please remove this defect of character so that I can do your will, which is to, to share to the best of my ability what this program has done for me. And I would pray it every time. And I can tell you that when I got up behind that podium, I was just as terrified as I was when they asked me. But the point is, the next time it was a little easier. And it always works in that order. And I hate that. I want it to work in the other order. I want God to remove the defect and then I'll do anything. Anything God wants me to do. I've got to take the action despite how I feel. And in showing my readiness through that action, the God of my understanding is able to sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly remove those defects. Resentment is another one. I can say, God, I know it's your will that I treat this person with love and respect, but I can't because I just hate them. I just can't stand them. And so please remove this resentment or hatred or whatever it is, and then of course I'll go treat them with love and respect. And of course, the God of my understanding says it doesn't work that way. You go treat that person with love and respect that they deserve, and in doing that, whether I want to or not, whether I feel it or not, that defect is removed from me. The actions always come first and the feelings follow. And I don't like it, but that's just how it's worked for me. I need to speed up here. Um, I saw that, uh, that I had done harm. You know, in, in looking at my part in that fifth step with the sponsor's help, I saw that I owed amends to every single person that I resented and a whole lot of others. And, uh, and I did not want to seek some of these people out. I had worked as thorough a fourth and fifth step as I could, but that resentment had not been thoroughly removed. A lot of it had, but there was still some there. And, but I got to see that I had harmed a lot of people. And uh, with my sponsor's help, I was able to go out and, and make amends. And uh, the, the miracle of that was this. I, I knew that some of that guilt that I still felt was going to be removed. And I was looking forward to that. I was looking forward to having the guilt removed when I made those amends. What I did not respect was that, uh, expect is that lingering resentment 
towards some of these people would be completely removed. And when it happened, I didn't understand it. How did that work? I always thought that for my resentment to be removed, for me to forgive you, you have to apologize to me, right? <laughs> not, not the other way around. You have to come beg my forgiveness, and then maybe I'll magnanimously bestow my forgiveness upon you, and then I'll be free. And so I didn't understand why, does it, why is it that when I go and I clean up the wreckage of my past and try to make better what the, the harm that I've done, why is it that my resentment is free? And I heard a speaker many years ago on a CD, I think, that put it, it exactly how it is for me. I'm the type of person who would rather feel anything but guilt. I hate feeling guilt. So if I've done something to you that I should feel guilty for, I need that resentment handy to remind me why I did it to you, why it's okay. You started it. If you hadn't done what you did, I never would have done what I did. What you did was so much worse. I need it right there so that when that guilt pops up, I can grab that resentment, cover up the guilt. When I clean up that wreckage and the, the guilt is gone, the resentment has no place in my life. No, it's just gone. And I can go anywhere and do anything. I, I, I didn't want to drive past the church school that I grew up in, literally. I, I would drive out of my way to not drive past it because of how I felt the anger and resentment and guilt and shame. I can go anywhere today and do anything because of the freedom of this program. I'm so grateful for that. I've got so many stories of, of freedom that I can't get into that, that, that the ninth step of making those amends has given me. But um, I never have to carry around that guilt and resentment if I'm continuing to take that inventory every day and, and try to promptly make amends. And sometimes I'm better at that than others. But I, I try to do that. And the other part of that daily inventory is I need to look at the good stuff as well every day. I need to acknowledge what this program is doing for me, but I'm getting better. And it may be just something as simple as, you know, I handled that situation at work a little better than I would have a year ago. Something needs to be part of my daily inventory because it is still possible for me today, and it doesn't happen very often, but it's still possible for me to have a really bad day or week or month where I just feel like this isn't working. This whole thing is not working. I'm just as crazy as I was when I got here. Uh, this whole God thing isn't working. This Al-Anon thing isn't working. And um, it's, it's a miserable place to be. And that is a really hard place to get to if I am daily acknowledging that that is not the case, that I am getting better. I'm getting better every day. And you know, obviously it's life. Some days are easier than others. But that's a very important part of my daily inventory. I didn't know how to pray when I got here. Uh, I would do some of those bargaining prayers that most of us did. And um, I just I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what to ask for. And my sponsor again just pointed out the beautiful simplicity of praying only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. I can complicate just about anything, but that is beautifully simple. That means I don't have to figure out what to pray for. I don't have to figure out what to pray for for you or for me. If I'm simply praying for God to show me God's will and then trying to do the footwork in the direction that I feel led, then I feel that by definition I am doing God's will, whether I see it or not. I'm seeking it. I'm trying to go in that direction. That every single thing that happens is happening for a reason. And no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. And that idea that I'm going to be okay really doesn't sound like much, but for me, that is the exact opposite of who I was when I got here, when nothing was ever going to be okay. And even brief glimpses of serenity were meaningless because I was just waiting for the next crisis, waiting for the next thing I was going to have to do. Um, there's a, a passage that I'm going to read as I close here in a few minutes that sums up the, the spiritual awakening that I've had as the result of these steps much better than I'm going to be okay, although that does sum it up for me. But uh, having had this spiritual awakening that we're promised as the result of these steps, I'm asked to do a couple of very simple things if I want to continue having them. That's try to carry the message and to practice these principles in all my prayers. I try to do what I'm asked to do. I am so grateful that when I came in, my sponsor said, hey, you need to learn how to say no to a lot of stuff. 
but Al-Anon requests are not on that list. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for that because I guarantee you when I got asked to speak, if saying no was an option, no. I would have never given my talk. <laughs> I guarantee it. And uh, so many other opportunities I would have missed out if I had said no. So I just I try to do what I'm asked to do. I'm an active member of my home group. Love my home group. Try to have a service position there at all times. Um, I just I, I, I'm blessed with the opportunity to sponsor guys and to carry the message that way. And and to see the lights come on in their eyes is one of the greatest gifts of my life. And I think the best thing about sponsorship is that every horrible thing I ever dealt with ever went through in my life it becomes a blessing if I can help someone who's going through it today and uh, so I just I try to do what, I, what I'm asked to do and I try to practice these principles I think one of the things I heard early on is one of the definitions of practice is to learn through repetition and I like that because I'm never going to get it I'm learning these behaviors through repeating what I've learned in here to the best of my ability every day and I got to do that everywhere you know I, I, I'm on my best behavior when I'm in a meeting so that means that, you know, a few hours a week, I'm a, I'm a spiritual giant, you know. <laughs> well, i got to take that out in the traffic <laughs> and at home and at work and with my crazy, crazy family if I want to continue to have the spiritual awakening. It's not for their benefit. It's for mine. Um, I, my life today is better than anything I ever could have planned or expected. Um, when I was 27, 28, I went back to school. Uh, I swore I'd never do. Just got a little two-year associate degree and got a real job. Uh, real career. I mean, what does that have to do with Al-Anon? Everything. Never, ever would have faced that terror of going back to school if it hadn't been for recovery in Al-Anon. Um, I have a great relationship with my family. My mom's dad just died, and my mom's mom's drinking is just... <laughs> we've never seen it like this. And I'm able to be of service to my mom. My mom doesn't go to Al-Anon. But I'm able to be of service to her and to share with her what I've learned here to help her get through the situation that she's, that she's going through. I'm so grateful for that today. Um, and I have a good, solid marriage today. Annie couldn't be here this weekend. She's really missing out. I know she would have loved to have been here. But we have a program-based marriage today. Our programs have to come first. Actually, God comes first. And then our programs and then our marriage. And I know that's not everybody's experience. It's just ours. We've tried it other ways. It just doesn't work. That's the order that it's got to work. And, uh, and I'm grateful to be in a relationship with someone today that is trying to, to practice these principles. It's a marriage. There are good days and there are not so good days. But even when we're not on the same path, we're trying to go in the same direction because of these, these, these programs that we're working. Sometimes I forget to mention that she did pick up a white shift. <laughs> She's been sober ever since. I really admire her program today, and I stay out of it. <laughs> to the best of my ability, she's got her program, I've got mine. We can share our experience, strength, and hope, and then we let it go. And, uh, and when we're able to do that, things are good. I'm so grateful for that today. Everything good in my life today is a result of the God of my understanding that I found in the program of Al-Anon and practicing these 12 steps in my life. Everything negative in my life today is just a direct result of my will and me getting back into trying to run the show. Like I said, this reading, I left my the actual book that it comes out on a car a while back when I had spoken somewhere. So I don't have the book. This is from the first edition of the Al-Anon Conference Approved book from Survival to Recovery. First edition. And some people call these the promises. Some people call these the gifts. I do not wish to engage in any controversy. So I call them page 269 and 270 from the first edition of From Survival to Recovery. And it really means a lot to me. And uh, you know what? I think anything in our literature that says, if you do this, this will happen, is a promise. And so for me, these are some of the many, many promises of Al-Anon. And like some other promises you may be familiar with, it starts with a big if. If 
we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. We will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we may never be perfect, continued spiritual progress will reveal to us our enormous potential. We will discover that we are both worthy of love and loving. We will love others without losing ourselves and will learn to accept love in return. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear, and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship will replace fear. We will be able to risk failure to develop new hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how battered and degraded, will yield hope to share with others. We will begin to feel and come to know the vastness of our emotions, but we will not be slaves to them. Our secrets will no longer bind us in shame. As we gain the ability to forgive ourselves, our families, and the world, our choices will expand. With dignity, we will stand for ourselves, but not against our fellows. Serenity and peace will have meaning for us as we allow our lives and the lives of those we love to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. No longer terrified, we will discover we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and all. We will laugh more. Fear will be replaced by faith, and gratitude will come naturally as we realize that our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When I first heard that read in a meeting, I, I, I thought, there's no way. I'm just too crazy. I'm too far gone. There's no way. The fact that every single one of these promises has come true for me is an incredible miracle for which I'll be forever grateful. Thanks so much for letting me share that.